This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, we're highlighting an exciting new book and the third book from Craig Barton. Craig's third book is called Tips for Teachers, not to be confused with my recent Tools for Teachers. And this book brings together over 400 insights from guests on Craig's new podcast of the same name, Tips for Teachers, as well as Craig's own experience working in schools around the world. Inside, you will find 22 ideas to enhance mini whiteboard use, 15 ideas to improve the start of your lesson, 14 ideas to help make silent teacher effective, seven ways to respond if a student says they do not know, and lots, lots more. Each idea can be implemented the very next time you step into a classroom. So whatever your level of experience, subject or phase, there's plenty of ideas in this book to help take your teaching to the next level. With the special code ERRR30, you can also get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. This includes Craig Barton's new book, Tips for Teachers, as well as my two books too, Cognitive Learning Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 74A of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode's guest is Josh Goodrich. Josh has been working in and with schools for over a decade with experience as an English teacher in both London and Thailand, as an assistant principal and national lead for professional development for over 50 schools through the Oasis Trust and more recently, as the founder of StepLab, now working with over 80,000 teachers to improve teaching and learning through instructional coaching. Josh and I were first put in touch by Peps McRae, who suggested that we'd have lots to talk about when it comes to helping teachers to improve. And Peps wasn't wrong. Since then, Josh and I have had countless discussions about supporting teacher development, and I've even seen him in action coaching teachers and running PD in a variety of schools during my recent trip to the UK. It's no exaggeration to say that Josh is the best instructional coach that I've seen in action. His ability to pinpoint a key skill for a teacher to work on, to make his suggestions in an enthusiastic and positive way, and to guide teacher practice to mastery is second to none. If there's one thing that's helped my coaching the most, it's simply seeing Josh in action when I followed him around for a day and watched him observe, 
and give feedback to five different coachees in just a couple of hours. I then watched him run a whole school PD session at AIM North London, where he is now the deputy head. The following interview with Josh is in two parts. In part A, Josh and I talk about the theory of instructional coaching, about the key principles that undergird it. We talk about generating teacher change, about navigating directive versus facilitative coaching methods, about what Josh calls responsive coaching, and about the challenges and opportunities of implementation. But I didn't want to stop there, and I wasn't willing to give up the opportunity to be coached personally by Josh either. So in part B, you'll hear Josh guide me through two cycles of improvement in my own classroom and hear the principles in action. I just can't wait for this one to hit the airwaves. One other piece of very exciting news before we jump into this episode, dear listeners, I've actually managed to convince both Josh Goodrich and Peps McRae to make the trek out to Australia in early 2023 to run an instructional coaching intensive so that you can learn even more about instructional coaching than what we can manage to squeeze into this podcast. To find out more about that exciting opportunity, to see Josh Goodrich and Peps McRae live in Melbourne, go to ollielovell.com forward slash coach. That's ollielovell.com forward slash coach coach. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 74. And apologies, I sometimes call this episode 73 in this episode. I got a little bit confused at times. But let's jump straight into episode 74 of the ERRR podcast with Josh Goodrich. Josh Goodrich, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks very much, Ollie. Really good to be here. Great to have you in. First question, Josh, jumping straight into it, what is instructional coaching? So I think there's kind of a a simple definition and then a more complex one. Simple definition, instructional coaching is a teacher working with another teacher one-on-one in a kind of repeated regular process where a teacher visits another teacher's lesson, works with them to set a precise target or an action step, and then helps them to implement that in their lesson using modeling and some form of implementation planning. And that, that definition comes from like some of the biggest pieces of research and in instructional coaching, particularly from a piece by Kraft. Like, I think that captures a lot of what's important about instructional coaching, particularly the one-on-one relationship that repeats over time and the focus on small kind of small targets. But I think it kind of misses what I think of as some of the things which work best or the things which are most important about instructional coaching. A more complex definition, uh, which I think captures some of the things which I think are very like best about instructional coaching, the things which I think work best, needs to capture some of the kind of active ingredients of instructional coaching. So those are, firstly, I think rehearsal is really important, otherwise known as uh, deliberate practice. So the idea that the teacher and the coach work together to plan the change into the teacher's lesson and then run that change in the context of, you know, a real lesson they're going to be teaching in the future often more than once. I think it's really important that the modeling is kind of broken down so that coach and teacher begin to see the active ingredients of a change, like what makes the change work really well in the classroom, how it works with particular students. I think that some kind of longer term goal settings missed from the basic craft definition is really important. Like the idea that instructional coaching works on a a specific goal over time. And finally, I think that there needs to be some aspect around sharing ideas about teaching. So talking about the science of learning and how that relates to the targets that coaches and teachers work on together. But I think all of those things together kind of for me form what I see as what instructional coaching should be. Awesome. 
Josh, why do you care so much about instructional coaching? So a lot of it's pretty personal for me. You know, I've been teaching for a while, but at first I found it pretty difficult and pretty difficult to get better at. I mean, don't want to admit too much, but let's say I spent at least a year having a, you know, not a great time. And if I'm really honest, I'd say that the second year I spent as a teacher, I wasn't having much of a better time. And the thing which made it difficult for me was that I kind of, well, first, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I didn't know what I wanted to get better at. Like I knew something was not right, but I found it pretty difficult to put my finger on. But then, you know, what, even once I'd realized, okay, like this aspect of my teaching isn't, isn't the way it, where it needs to be. And I know what I need to do. I tried to get better and, and basically didn't manage it. So when I finally hit upon this kind of, firstly, having, having, working with a coach, I didn't know it was instructional coaching at the time, but it was. And I was like, oh man, I'm just getting better. I basically was like, well, I'm never going to, you know, this is it for me. I'm, I'm going to make sure that other people don't have the same experience that I had, you know, because I, I started to work in kind of working with other teachers in my school after a certain time when I finally, you know, like started to get all right at teaching. So I was like, well, let's just make sure that other teachers have a lot of a better experience at getting better in school. Really, that's the kind of like, you know, the personal reason why I think that I'm so invested in helping teachers and schools to get it right. Mm. So, I mean, you shared a little bit, uh, not too much. I'd love, I'd love to dive in a bit more about some of those early challenges, but, but, but we won't, we'll save that for now. But you did mention about those kind of early challenges and, and the, the challenge of improving yourself, but also alluded to the challenge of teachers improving more generally. Why do you think it is hard for teachers to improve? And why do you think, you know, you found that instructional coaching and many people have found that instructional coaching is a really powerful lever to pull? Yeah. So put simply, like teaching is just extraordinarily difficult to get better at. Like there are some things baked into the reality of being a classroom teacher that that make it really difficult. Some of them are kind of external to teachers. They, they're, they're like the nature of schools and some of them are kind of internal to teachers. They're the nature of learning as a teacher. I think the external factors, which are probably some of the most, uh, you know, influential on the challenge of getting better are basically stress, being busy and emotional pressure. So there's some quite a large body of research, which is like stress is really, really not conducive to the kind of some important mental processes, like the kind of mental space to reflect and take stock and be like, okay, so I think I need to get better at this. And I'm going to put some time and effort into thinking about it. Like, it's really hard for teachers to do that because the reality of teaching is we're bouncing from one stressful situation to another. So I think, you know, teachers can sit in, you know, in a large PD in school, you know, oh, we're all going to learn about, you know, topic X. And even if a teacher thinks, oh, that's really pre- like pertinent to my practice, super useful for me, that's great. They're going to leave that PD. They're going to have to mark 30 books. They're going to have to plan three lessons for tomorrow. You know, if they're a bit newer, that, that it's going to be around 8 p.m. and they still haven't managed to leave the school yet. At which point is there the time to be like, oh, yeah, and there's that thing I wanted to really think hard about and get better at. I just don't think it's realistic. And then the same thing about emotional pressure, you know, I think a, a feature for a lot of teachers, particularly a lot of newer teachers, is sometimes it doesn't go that well. You know, sometimes your class aren't on board with you. If you've got a new group and they're difficult or your class didn't do that well in their last set of tests and you're like, oh man, this is really difficult. I'm stressed out. It's not going well. Again, 
you're not going to be in a space where you can really take the time to 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 kind of push yourself to improve on your own. Those are the kind of external factors. And then there are some things about teaching and how they interact with teachers which equally make it really difficult. I think the first and sometimes a bit of a neglected one in the in the discussion is this idea of awareness or situation awareness in the research. So basically teaching is pretty much characterized by lots and lots of things happening to teachers simultaneously. Right? Think about an an, an ordinary classroom situation where, you know, three students have come in and they're in a, b- a bit of a worse mood than they're normally in and you need to deal with them. You're overhead projectors on the fritz and you need to kind of like fix it your laptop's just shut down you know a bee's flying around the classroom and loads of students are like having a bit of a freak out at the back uh you know it's been raining outside so students haven't been able to go out and play all of this stuff's happening at the same time and you have to remember how to teach a a specific difficult topic which you haven't taught in a year so there's lots of stuff we might need to attend to but the reality of our attention span or our capacity for attention is it's completely fixed. You know, we can only see a certain number of things at any one time. So what happens for lots of teachers, again, particularly new teachers, is we get locked into patterns of what we see in a classroom and also like what we ignore. And that makes it very difficult to get better. So if a teacher just isn't seeing what they need to be responding to to improve, which is the case for lots of teachers, then no attempts to improve at it will work because we're not seeing the cues we need to see in the classroom to improve with that thing does that does that have have i explained that in a way that makes sense yeah yeah so you've you've sketched a good picture of some of those big challenges so that that for me is like a really major reason why it's hard to get better at teaching i think the second is cognitive load so you know very similar to the kind of attentional issues which teachers are under like we're also under similar pretty giant cognitive load issues you know there's just so much stuff we might have to think about at one time And so adding a thing I want to get better at into the mix, and so having to stop thinking about all the other stuff so I think about the thing I want to get better at makes it really difficult. Like we can't hold the improvement in our mind while teaching effectively, you know, or teaching the way that we're used to teaching. And similarly, like if we do make an improvement, there's some lot of research that says that if we come under a particularly high amount of cognitive load, we can actually backslide and you know, get worse at teaching because one of the processes that we w- that we go under when we're under high cognitive load is searching for a well-established default. Like an example of that for me was always like I got in the habit in my second year of teaching at like being a bit shouty because I didn't feel like I was in control. So I'd, I'd do the classic like get out at the drop of a hat. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to try positive behavior management techniques. And so I, I got good at using these with my easy year seven class, you know, like my easy 12 year olds. But then when I go into my you know, like less easy 15 year olds, I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so swamped. And I just immediately do the shouting again. So that's an example of how cognitive load fundamentally makes getting better at teaching really difficult to do. And I think the third and final is te- as habit. So basically, teachers um, teaching, and this is from... Mike Hobbis and Sam Sims in a great paper on teacher habits. Teaching is a crucible for rapid habit formation. Like the fact that it's stressful, there's a lot of emotional pressure. And the fact that teachers perform the same actions over and over and over again, you know, every lesson we fundamentally do the same things, means that pretty quickly we get very, very strong habits formed, 
we do most of our job pretty automatically. Even, you know, after two weeks uh, as a teacher, we're already pretty automatized. And so when we try to get better at something, we have a big mountain to climb because um, we have to not only like set a new habit, which for all the reasons I discussed previously is hard, but we have to break an old one first. So, you know, <laughs> all of those things mean getting better at teaching is pretty tough to do. So how does instructional coaching help? So I think instructional coaching is pretty ideally constructed to help us avoid these. So firstly, there's the one-on-one -on -one relationship, which is based on frequent visits to lessons. So the point of that is that the coach goes to a teacher's classroom and looks at specifically what's happening in their lesson and is in a position to see what maybe the teacher can't see and is in a position to share that with the teacher and help the teacher improve their ability to see their classroom in a way that is accurate and, and you know, is productive. In other words, to overcome those awareness issues. Secondly, the, the focus on regular but extremely small, precise, granular changes means that we help teachers to mitigate those cognitive load issues. We're not saying like, do they make this giant change, off you go. We're saying, we're going to make this giant change over six weeks, but this week we're going to make this tiny change, and next week we're going to make this tiny change. And so that helps to mitigate cognitive load. But more importantly, coaches work with teachers to make that change super, super easy. Like, I'm not going to say to you, Ollie, right, here's a tiny change. Go off and, go off and I'll see you next week. I'm going to say, here's this tiny change. Let's plan it into your next lesson, right? Let's set you loads of reminders so that you don't need to go in that classroom and remember. And let's rehearse that together five or 10 times so that you go to the classroom and you're, you've got a good chance of being able to make that change and mitigate those kind of difficult effects of cognitive load. And for me, like, I think it's as if instructional coaching was designed to overcome the realities of how hard it is to change the teacher. Awesome. So, so I'll, I'll try to summarize just to make sure I've, I've got it for myself. So one first big challenge is situational awareness. Teachers just have so much going on and they perhaps also don't have the, the mental models of, of what happened, of the true dynamics of the classroom. And so having a, a new and fundamentally an experienced set of eyes in the classroom helps to raise the teacher's awareness to maybe some of the things that are crucial for them to focus on. There's a cognitive load challenge. There's just so much to focus on at one time that they, they it's quite hard to allocate working memory to the improvement. And so by automa automatizing small steps, uh, steps towards improvement through coaching and a kind of a step-based approach to coaching like you advocate for, we can kind of start to overcome some of those cognitive load issues. And at the same time, overcoming the, the habits that become ingrained really quickly within coaching, rehearsal and deliberate practice is a way to start to break those habits. Have, have, I, have I summarized that, Josh? You've summarized it really nicely. And I would just add, as well as the kind of just rehearsing to start making those habits, it's about coaches figuring out how to help teachers remember to change too. So this idea of kind of what's called in the research implementation planning. It's like, how are you going to make that change? When are you going to make that change? How are you going to remember to make that change? Let's build a really concrete plan. And there's some pretty good evidence that just doing that you know, hugely increases, increases the chance of, of successful change happening. That's so good, Josh. And I, I, I've really been appreciating the conciseness of your answers so far, really structured, loving it. And you've painted a really clear picture of one, 
challenges, some of the huge challenges of teaching, and two, um, why cognitive, why coaching, instructional coaching offers a really plausible kind of solution and and way to address them. Love it. However, sounds like a nice picture. Sounds like it'll it's all going to go great. But often when we try to implement things, they don't go as we'd like straight away. So I'd love for you to take us back because I know that well, earlier you said that as soon as you found the bit and experience the benefits of coaching for yourself, you wanted to kind of share them and help other teachers have similar experiences, right? And so maybe you can take us back to that point in your career. You can let us know kind of where we, where you were, where you're working, kind of how long you'd been teaching for and what happened when you first tried to implement instructional coaching. What were the, some of the barriers you faced and, and what were the, some of the things you did to try to overcome them? Sure. Okay, so... I did the Teach First program at, at school called the London Academy and spent two years being, you know, not as good as I would want to be. Got coached by, shout out to a guy called Aidan Sadgrove, who gave me my first experience of coaching. Neither of us called it coaching, but he, he basically broke, t- broke behavior management down into little small bits and helped me get good at them one bit at a time. So I took over running, leading the initial teacher trainees at the same school in my third year and was like, well, everyone's getting that experience. So I stripped out all of the kind of let's all sit in a room and listen to a lecture style of PD. And I, I just made it super practical. Didn't, didn't know, you know, it was always just like, let's plan together. Let's rehearse together. Didn't no, it wasn't quite instructional coaching, but not too far off. Like at that time, I didn't know about instructional coaching. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't read any of the research. So then I, I after four years at that school, I went off to teach international school in Thailand. And that gave me the space and time to dig into research a lot more. And so one of the things I read was by um, Harry Fletcherwood, uh, guest on your podcast in the past. And Harry, I think, was is pretty did a lot of the hard work of introducing instructional coaching to the UK in a series of blogs that he wrote in like 2010 on what we called a like maybe leverage coaching. I think you referred to in this blog as. And through that, I found out about the work of a guy called Paul Bambrick Santoyo, who's the kind of one of the uncommon schools guys and who has this particular model of instructional coaching. Read all about it. I was like, well, now I understand the thing which I, was done to me. And this is the thing which I want to help teachers with when I, when I go back to the UK. So I moved back after two years at international school and I became the teaching and learning lead for a school in central London called Oasis Academy Southbank. And it was a really interesting case study as an implementation kind of challenge for instructional coaching because like the school was an outstanding school. It had, you know, incredible results doing great things with a really high disadvantaged population of students. The teachers, I mean, they'd they'd recruited basically loads of great teachers. But actually, when I got there, I found that the professional development was pretty, you know, wasn't great. Like it was a lot of like everyone sits in a room and has a a weekly talk, and then no one actually ever embeds anything new in their lessons. So I was like, well, I'm going to do instructional coaching for everyone here. Surely it's going to work really well. Everyone knows how to teach. So I I instituted like peer coaching across the board. That means every teacher both is a coach and a coachee. So everyone was in pairs, like I coach you, you coach me. But I actually found that it didn't work as well as I would have wanted it to. And, And, you know, it was a big learning experience for me because I, I didn't, again, like going into it a bit naively, I didn't realize how much of a tough implementation project instructional coaching can be. So I kind of hit upon, I guess, like 
maybe two or three challenges which have been really formative in kind of the work I've done since. So challenge one, I would go and see these teachers teach incredible lessons. And I'd be like, well, you obviously know how to teach. You're going to make a great coach. But then when I look at, watch their feedback, I'd be like, what is this? Uh, like fundamentally it was, you know, the targets they were setting were really woolly or too big or teachers were setting targets, which were just like questions. Like, oh, how could you get students to think harder? What I learned was even great teachers don't often make great coaches just off the bat. The targets were not granular. They were not doing modeling as part of their feedback. There was no rehearsal. In fact, feedback conversations tended to be just a load of talking, which I felt wasn't all that different from, you know, what they'd had in their PD diet in the past. And, you know, like I tried giving everyone a copy of Teach Like a Champion, which I think, you know, lots of listeners will agree is like a fantastic way of teachers getting better. But I felt that even with a Teach Like a Champion, people would just set each other like large chunks of it. Like, oh, can you do cold call, please? And, you know, I don't think asking some, saying to someone like, oh, let's work on cold call is going to help people be that much better at their teaching. I've been to Lamov like in-person PDs where, you know, I've, I've, I've had Doug Lamov teach me how to do cold call in a room with a lot of other people. And he broke it down so small. And I was like, well, obviously, like, that's what I need to help people do. So fundamentally, like challenge one, how do I help these great teachers set really precise feedback and deliver feedback, which has the kind of these important part, what I consider to be the important ingredients, right? Challenge two, a, a big mistake I made was that I was like, okay, you're, you two are paired up. Off you go. Can you arrange a time to see that person's lesson, then arrange another time to give them feedback in the day? You know, because the staff were all really keen and, and like at first people made the time to do that. But what I found was like the kind of amount of coaching that was completed, I felt like it was dwindling, which leads to my third challenge, which is that I had absolutely no data at all on how well the coaching was going. I didn't know whether it was really being completed. I didn't really know whether the feedback was good quality. The only data I had was arranging a time to go and see coaching in action, which obviously there were 60, there should have been 60 weekly feedback meetings. Like I could at most see one a week. So I was like, oh, I've deviated the course of my school's professional development. <laughs> you know, I've set us on this path and I really have no insight into how well it's going apart from some insight, which I'm gathering, which says it's not going very well. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it was it, I was a bit stressed out about it being honest so that's kind of you know learning things the hard way is a, is a bit of a characteristic of my uh, of my development as a teacher and a leader Ollie but yeah that's where I was at the time okay so it wasn't going well I'd hit upon three challenges challenge one great teachers don't make great coaches the quality of the action steps and the quality of their feedback wasn't where I thought it needed to be to help teachers change Challenge two, I hadn't built structures which allowed coaching to work in my school. And challenge three, the little bit of data I did have suggested it wasn't going well, but in reality, I didn't have enough data on how well this stuff was going. So I'm glad those things happened because fundamentally they set me on a path which has pretty much shaped the rest of my career because overcoming those challenges has fundamentally been what I've spent my time doing pretty much ever since. So shall I, shall I go through a little bit about what I did in those early stages? Yeah, that'd be awesome. So the first thing I did is, and I do think this is really an important first stage for 
those people listening who want to make coaching work in their school is I worked really closely with the staff at Southbank to build a shared vision of what great teaching and learning should look like at our school. The point of which was that coaches could then refer to it with teachers. It could form like our way of talking about teaching. What do we think matters in lessons? What do we describe those things as? Now, once we had that kind of like overall structure, and this is the really important bit, like lots of the things we arrived at was like teach like a champion and other techniques, like techniques from books and research on teaching and learning, is that I worked really hard to break those techniques down into a pretty big series of what we call action steps. So a good example, loads of people will know about cold call as a technique, cold call being like changing the way we ask questions to hold students accountable to think hard about the answer. So cold call is, uh, you know, a really difficult technique for teachers to get right. And in Teach Like a Champion, it's maybe got, you know, three to five pages of prose, which you can read about how to do the thing and then some videos. So I, I basically was like, right, well, fundamentally, let's think about a teacher who is really struggling to implement this technique. Like, what are all the things which they might want to work on with a coach from setting the culture of their class to launching the technique with their class to things they can do when they pause before asking a question to raise a lot chance that students are thinking to things they can do if students still don't do the thinking they're required to do even once the teacher's implemented the technique. And I ended up breaking just that down into, you know, maybe 30 different, really, really granular action steps. And I did the same thing for, you know, lots of what it means to be a good classroom teacher. It took me a good while. And I ended up with actually at the time was like a nice analog solution was that I had these things on ring bound laminated pieces of paper with a little key ring in the corner. And I put a hook on by the every single teacher's door to their classroom. And so coaches would walk in and pull that thing off the wall and they could use that as a guide. Like I wasn't and still don't think you have to set one of these. My point was coaches your action steps need to be as granular and precise as these, or they need to be these. And so like, I think that what that did, having that, is it meant pretty much overnight once I developed it, was that coaches were setting action steps of a granularity and specificity such that they avoid lots of the, um, the cognitive load issues that we mentioned earlier. But what we hadn't yet solved was the fact that the feedback conversations were a little bit woeful. You know, I'd still go and see feedback, which was often like, uh, you know, or how do you think that went? Oh, you know, I think it went great, but I, you know, I think I need to work on this. And the coach would be like, oh, yeah, I completely agree. Like, I think that we should focus on this step. Okay, see you next week. And so I was like, okay, well, I don't think, I mean, we've probably raised the likelihood of teachers changing here, but we haven't made assurances. We need to improve the quality of people's feedback meetings. So I went back to the drawing board and I took each of those individual steps and I wrote some additional things which I hoped could drive the quality of the feedback conversation. The first thing I did was for each of those action steps, I wrote what we call a rehearsal guide for each one. And that is the thing that a coach and a teacher need to do together in order to like do some good quality planning and rehearsal around that step. Would it be helpful to give an example? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so let's take, let's say I'm working with you on cold call and specifically on the way that you structure your question in a lesson, like using the kind of question, pause, name structure. 
So if I just said, well, okay, Ollie, we're going to do, we're going to work on question Paul's name, you know, see you next week. Like that's not going to help you change necessarily. So what I did is I wrote something, a rehearsal guide for that step, which looked a little bit like, okay, let's grab a lesson you're going to be teaching over the next week. Let's select the moment in that lesson where you're likely to be asking questions and let's like list down the important subject content that you're going to be asking questions about. Let's using that script some really good quality questions. Let's make sure that those questions are phrased in the question pause name way. And when we've done all of that stuff, I mean, in reality, like if that happens in a coach, in a feedback meeting, I think change is suddenly extreme, like much more likely to happen in the lesson. But once we've done that, let's now rehearse that part of the lesson. Let's basically run that part of the lesson, have you ask those questions. And, and then I, I'd say, to be honest, uh, the single piece of resourcing I did, which made the biggest difference, it was probably, uh, you know, doing that. So I wrote one of those for every single, every single action step. Again, it took a while, but I think that, that, improved the, um, that improved the quality of the feedback meeting pretty much immeasurably. How did, how did you kind of introduce the, one, the the kind of booklet of action steps and two, this way of giving feedback, did you just kind of run this in whole school PDs or similar? Yeah. So once I'd launched coaching and then figured out that coaching wasn't happening the way I wanted, another change I made was utilizing lots of the whole school PD time, which previously had been spent doing whole school PD as coaching training time. So yeah, so like I would launch these changes with staff in that time. So when the, the giving people that kind of like list of action steps, I took loads of film of my lesson, other people's lessons, and we practiced using that list to set the teacher a step. And then with this rehearsal guide, fundamentally, I just modeled it a ton of times and modeled using it, modeled how that should look. And then I got people to practice using it in pairs and all, all that stuff. So, that, so that's how I kind of, you yeah, know, how I launched that and how I still do launch it. Awesome. Awesome. So it's, yeah, it's pretty much like coaching on the coaching. You follow, you break down the coaching process into sh- small steps, you model it and then you get people to practice the steps. It makes it perfect sense. Yeah. So where are we? Cool. So you, we, we've talked about the three challenges of making teachers into good coaches, you know, structures for, structures for the coaching in terms of within the school and the school day and the school week and data and oversight and tracking back to what you've covered so far. I believe you've been covering what you did, such as writing action steps, writing kind of practice guides for the action steps and running whole school PD on how to use those practice guides and the action steps. And that's how you went about turning teachers into good coaches. Yep. And I think that that was a lot of what I did. A final, a final bit of like resource-based stuff, which might be useful to share, is that the last kind of problem I noticed around the feedback, well, I'd say the last two was modeling could be a bit flimsy like i I, i'd see pretty good planning happening because of that rehearsal guide but then when i'd look at a feedback conversation i would either not see really good quality modeling by the coach or i would see modeling which probably didn't go into enough depth about how a specific technique worked and then i would also not see enough rehearsal with feedback and i think those are kind of related issues because if a coach can do a good quality model and break it down then in reality, they can probably give good quality feedback on, on a rehearsal as well because it's kind of the same ingredients they're using. So the last thing I did is I wrote what's called a success criteria for each of the steps. And what I tried to do there, in reality, this is, we're still kind of working on this because it's pretty hard. But in reality, I tried to kind of take a, a step 
and think about what the really active ingredients are of that step. Like what are the precise things which make that step work? So that if I was to model the, that cold call step to you, I could then be like, and notice here that I used a really warm tone of voice and notice here that I, you know, did X or Y. And likewise, if I'm giving you feedback, I could say, okay, Ollie, it was, you know, the length of the wait time you used was, was really, really strong. However, when, when we rehearse next time, I want you to focus on doing X or Y and then ask you to do it again. So that's the kind of like the last thing I did, the last piece of the puzzle is making sure that I broke steps down even further into success criteria to allow for better modeling and better feedback as well. Mm. That's awesome, Josh. Awesome. So turning teachers into good coaches, wrote action steps, wrote practice guides of how to, how to model and practice it, wrote success criteria, introduced in whole school PD. I'm interested in the next thing. How did you kind of deal with this structural issue within schools? Yeah. So that was in certain ways, like the hardest piece of the puzzle because you know we've talked about it earlier the, the kind of one of the nature of the beast is that like there's not very much time and that uh, was a challenge and actually lots of schools i work with solve it in different ways like the thing i did was basically repurpose a meeting so we had there was actually quite a lot of time after school there was a subject meeting on a, one day a week which i obviously didn't want to touch like that, like that's not, that's for doing something else than coaching. There was also this whole staff meeting, which happened pretty regularly and which I, having experienced it for six months, I felt like, well, is this really helping teachers to get better? Like a lot of it was just like sharing messages, which I felt could actually be done in a lot more of an efficient way. And some of it was spent by someone standing up and being like, oh, this is this part of teaching. Let me talk about it for a bit. And we've talked about why I don't think that's particularly productive way of helping teachers to get better so what i essentially did was talk my school principal into letting me have that time you know we're going to use it for coaching feedback time this is why it's going to be a better value use of the time and she eventually agreed and so what happened was that instead of people maybe finding the time to do feedback at a lunch break or you know a break time or in a free period which wasn't working people all met together for an hour after school and person a spent half an hour feeding back to person B, and then person B spent half an hour feeding back to person A. Now, I tried a few different iterations of that. I tried people being in different rooms or in their own classroom, but actually, you know, like, there's some research which suggests that like the contextual realism of the place you do practice matters. But ultimately, I decided to sacrifice that for everyone doing it in the same room. I felt, and this is again a personal decision, that like the culture building aspects of just like having all this feedback happening and seeing certain people get up and do some modeling and that setting an example for people who may may need a bit of a push to do that like outweighed the potential like loss of a realistic context so that's the tweak i made i can't tell you how well it worked it was like overnight coaching feedback was happening what i don't do and still don't in the school which I run coaching in now is I don't give coaches the time to do the observation. My sense is that I never have someone coaching more than one or at most two people. And if they're coaching two people, in reality, they're a senior leader and have time. For the average teacher, I'm asking one, you know, 15 to 20 to maybe at the most 30 minute lesson observation a week. And I've always just really like, you know, politely requested that people use a free period to do that. And I've never found that, you know, once staff see the benefits, I've never found that that's been too much of an issue to overcome. Sometimes people get busy and, and they can't do it. 
that's the nature of being in a school. Sometimes people forget that's the nature of being in a school. But I, I found that like asking people to, to do the observation, but then providing the feedback time was, was honestly the, like a, a kind of like a big, important tweak in terms of getting it right. Mm, that's really interesting. So the way that you solved this structural problem was, you know, with every teacher being a coach, which is one of the step lab bylines, you know, every teacher a coach, every teacher was a coach, everyone received coaching. And also you, you made time for that feedback by kind of co-opting time from whole staff meetings. I think that's a really, really, really effective approach. There, there are a lot of schools who take a different approach, which is they kind of nominate an instructional coach who manage like 10, 12 people, something like that. Do you also support schools who take that approach? Did you just do the like every teacher coach approach because that's all you had resources for? Who would you recommend one approach for versus the other? I think that, you know, it really is open to the school and what they want. For schools that want to move teaching on really, really quickly, like obviously the, the more expert the coach is, the faster they'll be able to do that. Like I've always been of the mind that I want everyone to have the experience of having a coach. Like the reality of the situation is I don't have that many instructional leaders that are able to do that job. And I've never had it in any school I've worked in, including in South Bank, which had like, you know, basically a cohort of incredible teachers. I still didn't have that there. So I've always been of the mind of like, look, let's just get everyone doing it. I basically want to democratize it. I want to get everyone doing coaching. I want to help everyone get good at it over time. Like, I think what I sacrifice is sometimes coaching and feedback isn't of the best quality. But I also think that what you get when you do that is like a really important cultural benefit, which is like coaching isn't because you're not good at teaching. Coaching isn't, you know, in any way a remedial practice. Coaching is for everyone. And we're all trying to get good at coaching. And I think what you build as a school, if you do it that way, is over time you build massive organizational strength. Because what you get after one year or two years is you get a bunch of people that are really good at making other teachers or helping other teachers to get better at their jobs. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's two great benefits to that. I mean, I remember we when I was recently over in the UK and we went down to see Ted Rag St. Luke's together. One of the things Alex Evans was really advocating for was really normalize coaching by making sure, and you know, this is something you've, you've said in the past as well, by making sure every teacher has a coach and that just strips away all these prejudices and biases and kind of complaints about why did I get allocated a coach and they didn't, or, you know, I wanted to have a coach, but we didn't have enough coaches this year and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so there's that cultural benefit, but as you mentioned that I hadn't actually thought about that before, before the kind of organizational strength from, it's not like, oh damn, we lost our best coach. They went to be the leader of teaching and learning at this other school now we're screwed it's like oh well actually we have 50 more coaches who are all you know eight out of tens instead of nine or ten ten out of tens but that can just wholesale move our teaching and learning forwards love that right exactly and you don't need to give like let's say you you have a system where there's five people and they're coaching everyone you those people you need to give them time they can't really teach whereas you know because they have to have all this time in the day to coach Whereas I think with the other way, you know, you can make it work around a normal school day, which I, which I think, you know, is also a big benefit. That's great. And, uh, you know, I was reading, you mentioned Kraft before, I was reading one of his papers the other day, the meta-analysis, and it was, one of the key points was if you're planning on scaling coaching by making the best teachers your coaches for lots of people, be careful because, you know, the, the, the primary effect you're having is taking the best teachers out of classrooms. 
and you're hoping for a secondary effect, which is that they help other teachers to get better. But you, you are running a risk of, of the primary effect outweighing the secondary effect. Exactly. And, 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 you know, some of the most persuasive instructional coaching research actually comes from p- these guys, Showers and Joyce. They were like the first people to really mention teacher coaching or instructional coaching back in like the early 80s. And they always talk about peer coaching. Like they don't, they don't, they're not like, you know, you need these like godlike instructional leaders that have gone on, you know, hundreds of hours of training on how to be an instructional coach. They're like, get teachers working together, get them coaching each other you will see big benefits. And in fact, they, they point to some, they've done some research, which points to like just the impact of adding peer coaching to normal school PD. And in terms of like how much more efficacious it makes the normal school PD. So again, like I'm a big believer in peer coaching being, being the right structure. That said, like if you want that to work, you need to put a ton of stuff in place. You need to train coaches regularly. You need to help them to understand what great teaching should look like and give them action steps and help them with what good rehearsal looks like. And you need to have good data on what's happening in coaching so that you can spot examples of weaker coaching and feedback in a, in a pair and like act to improve it. I think that's really important. It's not, you can't just decide you peer coaching are oh, great. I'm going to make it work and then really like not do anything, which is what I did. <laughs> you have to decide peer coaching and then make it work pretty robustly through lots of like high quality implementation. Mm. So coming back to that kind of implementation and the importance of getting those shared and agreed upon action steps, or, or I guess Jim Knight would call it a playbook, but but action steps are definitely generally more kind of pinpoint targeted, practicable and things like that. I've heard some people say in the past that those that should be something that's kind of co-constructed. A school should go through some kind of, I don't know, collaborative process to derive their teaching and learning model and and the steps and things like that. It, but it seems like you you did quite a, essentially a top-down or a, a one-man job of writing all those action steps and then kind of said, "Hey guys, these are the action steps. Let's let's get coaching on these." What what's your thought about the costs or benefits of each of those approaches and how did you make the kind of Josh does it all approach work? Yeah, it's a good question. I I think that having a shared agreement on the level above action steps really matters. I don't think that like, you know, having people literally decide on the individual precise things is that important. I'll give you an example. Like we might agree as a school that the thing we all want to work on together over the next half term is getting better at circulating to gather data on student learning. Like all of the teachers might think, oh, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Like, I agree that, you know, I, I probably need to be a bit better at responding to error in my classroom. And, you know, I feel like my current systems for that are not good enough or whatever. And every teacher agrees. Like, the agreement on that the, the overarching goal matters is the thing which is important. Like, someone writing all the individual little things which a teacher might need to do to get really good at that thing, I don't think needs to be done by everyone. Like the thing which is important is that you invest in sharing what good looks like really, really clearly. Like I've also, I've made the mistake in the past in, you know, my early implementation to being like, okay, yeah, these are all these action steps, like off you go and coach. And what I think fundamentally happens is that people, coaches and teachers don't have a, pr- a clear idea about like what great looks like in these specific things that matter in teaching these specific teaching goals. 
like a couple of things which I have done to to kind of remedy that. The first is that on you know I, over time and on Step Lab now, all of the action steps has an exemplar video of a great teacher in you know it's currently in a UK context. And not only one, but a great teacher doing that thing in a, in a variety of different contexts. So we try to have a maths teacher, a science teacher, an essay-based subject teacher, and a practical subject teacher, like a music lesson or a technology lesson. And so that you can see that, like, this is this important step, cold call, but it happens, like, slightly differently in all these different contexts. So that's what we have now. You know, that, that really helps because then... You know, a school decides, well, this is an important instructional goal for us. Let's do coaching on it. Or a coach does. Then they can also look at all the video and think, okay, so so I think I have a pretty clear idea about what good looks like. And also those videos can form the backbone of modeling in the feedback meetings. Now, that's like good. And so if a school's doing that and and they've got all these feedback meetings and people are looking carefully at video of good practice, you know, we learned that from Teach Like a Champion, right? The, The videos in Teach Like a Champion make Teach Like a Champion work really well. And so that's what we, you know, on Step Lab, we went and we filmed, you know, like spent, you know, months and months and months filming and, and, and breaking this film down into individual action steps. And so that was good. But the schools that do, you know, do great in terms of launching techniques and, uh, you know, modeling film the videos themselves over time. And so another thing that we've worked really hard to do on Step Lab is we've built technology that allows schools to sell to film their own video of what great teaching looks like and replace the step lab videos over time and so what you get there is you get like not only is there like oh a shared understanding of what this technique looks like or this important goal looks like but it's like a shared understanding and what that looks like here and i think like that is the gold you know that's the gold standard because what that does is it kind of like it makes sure that there is this kind of shared understanding and some commonality in teaching practice across classrooms in the school, which I think is really important. Mm. And another good thing that some schools have done is not only use those videos to train teachers, but also use those videos to show students. So it's like, hey, everybody, it's the start of a new year. Your your year seven's coming in or your uh, year eights who need a reminder. This is what an entry routine looks like. This is what your teacher is trying to get you to do. And this is what we expect you to do. (laughs) The focus way in which we expect you to enter the lesson and get stuck into the do now. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, like that, we saw that at, um, at, at, at Ted Rags and Luke's, didn't we? Yeah. And, you know, like I currently am working at a school in, as deputy head in North London. And one of the issues we're having is like, we want student behavior, particularly like student behavior surrounding attention to be basically better. So I've been really focusing on training staff in like techniques, which help to guarantee student attention. And a part of that has been me filming teachers doing a really good job of that in my context and those are on Step Lab. So when coaches coach on that thing, they can see, you know, a history teacher in, in my school doing it. But we are definitely also going to be in the new year. We're going to be doing assemblies for the for the kids like here's why attention really matters. And here's what a student paying attention looks like. And, and, and so, again, yeah, I'm stealing that, stealing that from uh, Alex Evans at St. Luke's. Love it. So, so powerful. Great, Josh. So, so we've got, you know, make good teaching to good coaches. We've got the structures, which you've just shared with us about every teacher, a coach, coaching pairs and using that professional development time for the 
peer coaching feedback sessions. The third challenge you mentioned was kind of data and oversight. So how did you how did you come to overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I used to spend when in the in the early days of me setting up the coaching program, you know, eight eight ten years ago, I used to spend so much time scrabbling around for data on what was going on even really simple data like is it happening like did the coach visit the teacher's lesson like they have scheduled to do and have agreed to do or did they not did they meet and do feedback like i don't know and so i obviously tried like a trillion different systems like i had teachers having to log into a google sheet and put stuff in there and i used to have i mean i used to have coaches manually hand in the sheet which they scripted their feedback on. I mean, like, and anyone who has done school leadership will realize that any of these systems is basically a nightmare that is eventually going to break and require, you know, requires like superhuman efforts from one person to, to, you know, to, to make it survive. So I tried all these things to get even this basic data. And then that's like, and, and that data is just really, is it happening? And then there's the much more kind of like qualitative data of, is it good? Like, do I even know that the action steps that are being set every week are appropriate for the teacher? Like, is the coach massively changing teaching goal every week? So they're doing cold call week one, something on behavior management week two, something on, you know, like building, running pacey activities week three, something on scripting good English explanations in week four, which is basically bad coaching, bad curriculum design. Like, I don't even know. And then are they scripting good quality feedback? You know, and so I basically like had to, I tried a million different ways of gathering this data. Ultimately, you know, long story short, I, I basically built it into StepLab over time. And so what StepLab does is that all this coaching happens. And then I, as a lead, can go on and be like, oh yeah, everyone did their coaching last week. Brill. Like, or, ooh, these four coaches didn't manage to do it. Um, like, and then I can go and have a conversation with the coach and be like, hey, is there something I can do to make it easier for you? to make sure you can get in and support X. And then, you know, and also likewise, I can look at the action steps every week between the teacher and a coach and see if I, if they're, if they seem appropriate and see if the pattern over time is, um, is accurate. And I can actually go and see the teacher myself and think, okay, so are they really making these improvements to their classroom? And I can open up someone's feedback meeting and have a look. In fact, more recently, we've built something where a coach can film their feedback meeting and that allows this coaching on coaching thing, which you alluded to earlier, you know, which is essentially like to get really good coaching, we need to coach coaches on their coaching. And so like, that's a, a, the new thing, which I'm working on along a lot of the coaches I work with is that, you know, like people film their coaching meeting and then we have, you know, and then they're like, oh, please help me. I really want to be better at doing rehearsal. And I, and I or someone else can watch and be like, you know what, your rehearsal is really good. However, to make it even better, you need to focus on this thing. So, so these are all the data I needed. And ultimately, like, yeah, I built it. Uh, the accountability data, firstly, like, is it happening? And then the quality data, is it good? It, are the targets appropriate? Do they suit the teacher and are they working? I, I built that into StepLab. And so ultimately now the, the, what the platform does is kind of get this for leads and it takes, you know, five minutes to look at it. Whereas it used to take me conservatively like five hours a week, which, which of, so that, that's kind of how I, yeah, how I solve the problem. That's great. So yeah, I mean, you, you've you've sketched a very kind of logical narrative there for us, Josh. You know, you were you were you were having a challenge as a first, second, third, fourth, fifth year teacher, trying to get better. You came across instructional coaching. What was the name of the, your first coach? That's Aiden Sadgrove. 
Aiden Sadgrove, he gave you a hand. He showed you the power of coaching. You wanted to implement it. You ran into some challenges. You know, not every teacher knew how to be a coach. There were structures that the feedback wasn't happening and then you didn't have data and oversight and you systematically kind of addressed each of those challenges. It's, it's, it's a wonderful narrative. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary will encapsulate lots of ideas from ERRR episode 74A, including Josh's definition of instructional coaching, the three challenges that he faced when implementing it, and the specific steps he took to overcome those challenges. Josh's coaching process and the advice that he gives for each step, Josh's thoughts and some of my reflections on facilitative versus more directive coaching approaches, and other coaching tips and tricks, as well as more reflections and ideas from part B, including our current thoughts on how to best make the bid within coaching, advice on what makes quality practice, and much more. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favorite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. So Josh, you've just talked to us about these kind of how you overcame these three challenges. I mean, there was a kind of an interesting thing at the end there where we came to that data and oversight bit where you were like, oh, so I just built it into StepLab. And I'm sure there are people listening and going, okay, all right. So I, I get I get how as a lead of teaching and learning, he kind of developed action steps and he put them on a hook in the room and then he ran whole staff PD on being a better coach and he changed the structure um, so that we could do feedback. But I don't get how he ended up with this app that is some like online platform with all this functionality on it. Like not every not every lead of teaching of learning kind of solves their problems by developing a kind of whole suite of online tools, right? So can you, can you help us out a little bit here, Josh? How did you end up building this thing called StepLab that now does all the things that solves all these problems that you encountered? Sure. I can try. I'm basically, I don't know if the obsessed with removing barriers is the, exactly the right like way of phrasing it. But when I hit upon a, a thing that is not working, which is like stopping teachers getting better, like whether it's a, you know, a technical barrier or whatever, like I really try and engineer it out. So where were we? We had a, a, a funny little booklet with really size five font printed hanging in classrooms the booklets would get lost. A kid would be like, oh, what's this? You know, and, and take it. Some of them got graffitied on, not going to lie. You know, these things happen. And, you know, it wasn't as usable as it could be for coaches who, who, you know, 
flipping manually through this thing and having all this massive amount of information, you can imagine like just hundreds of these little steps, you know, it's just not super usable. So I was really lucky to have the first school I worked at had a, like an in-house developer, web developer, whose name was Ben. Shout out Ben. And Ben is basically like a genius, coding genius. And the school uh, were really kindly uh, were said like, oh, this, this thing you're working on is really interesting. You know, you, you said you want to kind of like see if you can put it online to make it easier to use. We'll second Ben to you for two days a week and you and Ben can build this thing together. And then, you know, all of our coaches get to use it. So the first thing Ben and I did was put all the action steps on the internet. But the important thing we did there was like hide lots of the complexity. So rather than, you know, you confronted this piece of paper and it's like all of the information is there. Actually, all that coaches see when they used it is like, you know, I think the, the question was, we asked that, you know, where could, the, where could the teacher make the most powerful change? And then there's like only five choices. It's like, you know, behavior management, questioning or whatever. And the coach is like, oh, I definitely think it's behavior. Click. And that expands out into a few more really simple choices. Like which area of behavior management could this coach and teacher work on? Or I think it's to do with the entry routine. Like classroom entries could, could be improved. You click that and that expands out into you know, a couple more simple decisions. And over, over time, as the coach clicks through and they never really are exposed to complexity such that would overwhelm a coach, ultimately, they then arrive at detailed action steps, but the process of getting there wasn't difficult to do. I hope that I like, I'm trying to describe that in as clear a way as I can without, without showing it. So that's the first thing we did is we, is we built those action steps and the decision-making process underpinning it, we put it on the internet. And once we'd done that, the next barrier was obviously this like data one, like, oh, I don't know what's happening. I think people are using it, but like, I don't know. And so we, the, the, we were like, well, if we put the coaching on StepLab so that coaches actually use StepLab to, to observe the lesson, script their coaching feedback, and then deliver their feedback, then obviously we'll know whether it's happening and I'll have some idea about whether it's good. And so we built that and then ultimately like once we had an important point, which I haven't made yet, is that also that allows us to offer some guidance around what good quality lesson observation and good quality feedback looks like, because we can use the structures on StepLab to steer coaches in a particular direction or deliver them like some training as they use it, which is what we do. So yeah, so like, you know, fundamentally it just made sense to overcome these barriers to have it all happening on StepLab because it's like it's making the process as easy and as slick as possible so the people using it can focus on doing the thing that matters, which is helping, you know, working with teachers to to, to get better at their jobs. Mm. Makes sense. So, I mean, essentially you were in this role and you just happened to be lucky that there was a, a techie guy working at the school, Ben Abelman, and, you know, the school was like, oh, yeah, work with this guy. And he just managed to kind of to kind of build it all out and you, we went from there. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, like I, I imagine that the school pr probably weren't as thrilled as they might have been when ultimately Ben made the decision to come over and work with me full time because they lost <laughs> they lost him as the in-house developer. But we're all we're all friends again now. Um, but yeah, so, that, you know, that was it. And, and, you know, ultimately everything we've ever done has followed that same like, I don't know what you'd call it, like that same logic, like oh, there's this annoying barrier or problem. 
it's meaning that something is not working as well as it could. Can we design a solution to that problem that is integrated into all the other stuff, all the other problems which we help to solve? Yes, let's do it. You know, that's that's how we built StepLab. You know, it's just in response to problems. It's great. I mean, I, I had Vivian Robinson on a couple of episodes ago and she was talking about virtuous educational leadership and she basically characterizes leadership as the fundamental heart of it is complex collaborative problem solving. And she basically says, what's the leadership? It's identifying a problem. It's working out a, a solution to that problem given the constraints and then it's automating the solution to that problem such that you can then build on top of it. And so, that I mean, I think that's a really, really nice kind of characterization of leadership and, and of life more generally. It's like, oh, I need to like get up, get dressed, get to work. That's a problem. Like let's solve it given the constraints of time and like my house and how far I live and public transport options, et cetera. And then you automate it. And then once you've automated it, you can listen to a podcast while you're going to school or you can read a book or whatever it might be and you can build on top of it. So, yeah. And it, I mean, it's great because that's exactly how it sounds like you've built this this organization. So, kudos to you, mate. You mentioned that um, one of the things that you put on the platform was this kind of a, a structure for the coaches to actually kind of take their notes and things like that. Uh, this is a, a part that I really want to home in on because often when people talk about coaching, they talk about like coaching cycles or like different steps that coaches should go through or different phases. And I, to me within StepLab, where that is kind of housed or, or, or that the template that's provided is within the framework. So just to, to give a bit of an overview before we dive into different parts for listeners, the kind of the, the structure of the scaffold for me or you or anyone as a coach coming on is they first see a box that says praise, prompts you to praise, prompts the coach then to plan a question to ask about the previous action step and a question to ask following kind of following that praise. There's a space for observation notes. There's an opportunity for step selection. There's an opportunity to kind of ask another question. And this is a phase that this is a two-part interview. We've, we actually interview, we, we recorded the first part or the second part first, which was you coaching me. And in that portion, I introduced this phrase, the bid, which is kind of the, the, the phase of the coaching conversation where the coach goes from, oh, everything was great. And now we need to like have a chat about what, what you might be able to improve. Um, so there's an opportunity for you to coach to plan their bid. There's an opportunity for them to plan modeling, plan a question about the model, plan rehearsal uh, and plan actions and observations. So that's kind of, sounds like a, so it does sound like quite a few steps, but they do logically kind of follow each other. So I wanted to just jump in to each of those in a little bit of detail for you to give us a bit of a sense of what the goal of that kind of that step is within the coaching process and, and what constitutes quality at that stage. Because I think I think this is, I mean, when I've seen you coach, Josh, and I, you know, watching you coach when I was over there in the UK was probably the the single thing that's kind of helped me improve as a coach because, you know, you can read so much, you can understand this theory, but when you actually see a real expert doing the thing, you realize 
it's exactly what you're saying before. It's like you need a model of what quality looks like and seeing you do it was that for me, the best model of what quality coaching looks like. So first of all, thank you for that. But it also demonstrated to me that there's a, a lot of knowledge and nuance behind each of these steps that you have and that you're trying to codify for people. So I'm really keen to kind of drag some of that out, out of you now for the benefit of listeners. So the first thing that I alluded to, the first kind of step within the coaching framework is the idea of praise. So first of all, you know, why do we start with praise? And secondly, what makes effective praise? Sure. Do you, would you mind if I jump back one step before I get onto praise? Go on. So we're, we're just going to, I think we're just going to be talking about like the, the structure of good quality feedback and like what, why we've chosen this specific structure. I think it's important to say as well that like w- what we've tried to do is arrive at like the simplest framework consistent with what the research suggests of as, is good coaching. And you'll, you'll have seen this and also, you know, you'll have done this yourself in your coaching conversations. Like that doesn't mean that we want every coaching conversation to be in any way a carbon copy of any, any other conversation. The point is that every single part of the conversation is fully adaptable. Like what we want is that beginners can follow the structure kind of more or less as is. And what they're doing that because like, that's how beginners learn, like to help beginners get good at something, we give them a highly structured way of following it. But there's someone like you or I, who's done a lot of coaching can adapt and adjust and make it more complex. So it's important to say that like, what we're going to do is talk about a structure here. But the point I think is that the structure is kind of, um, it's not a straight jacket. It's like a, it's a scaffold, but it's a scaffold, which can be, um, like, massively tweaked and adapted as people kind of like understand how they could do that is that fair to say yeah that's good and i think that's a really good um kind of preamble to us jumping in now so we're talking about praise right and your question was why start with praise and what makes good praise sure well i think like simplest kind of answer is because a, a conversation between two professionals about where one professional is potentially a bit vulnerable is should probably start with some nice stuff and we've all seen, or maybe, you know, I certainly have seen coaching conversations which don't, and I certainly have had that done to me, like, oh, oh, you know. I mean, I've had m- multiple lesson observations of done of me, not coaching, where someone was like, oh, that wasn't very good, was it? I was like, okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, you know, year one and two, <laughs> it was a dark time. So, let look, begin with some honest, open, nice stuff about, the teacher having worked really hard to try and teach their students really well and made an important change to their practice. Like, you know, you know that we shouldn't understate the importance of that. The second more researchy one is about what teacher motivation even means. So my favorite kind of um, research, you know, research on teacher motivation is done by a guy called Thomas Gusky. And he says that often researchers have motivation back to front. Like they think that motivation should needs to be first and teacher learning should be second. In other words, we need to work really hard on motivating teachers. And then once they're motivated, we can be like, all right, let's get better. And Gusky's like, mm-mm, wrong. Like teachers are motivated by getting better and by the impact that getting better has on their students, which is what teachers care most about, like the learning of their students, which I would 100% agree with. And so fundamentally, teachers are motivated when they can see They've tried something, it worked, and students learnt more as a result. So the point of this precise piece of praise is basically like, look, we were working on this, 
you know, we agreed that, you know, we'd think about doing making this change. You made the change. Stuff was way better. Like, great job. Let's focus on, let's draw your attention to the things that were, you know, that you did, which helps students to learn more. And I think that what Gusky would say and what I would agree with is what that does is that over time, that basically builds teacher motivation and investment in the process of getting better. That's great. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's something that Pips McRae emphasizes and did emphasize in the episode with him on each episode on motivation. It's like success is the greatest motivator. And there's a school here in Australia. You met Tony and Michael when they came over. They run Mastery Schools Australia and their tagline is success is the fun they offer. And it has been my own experience as well when one teaching, learning anything, but also as a coach, it's when that success starts to rear its head that you really start to get traction. Paul Graham also is who's one, one of the founders of a startup incubator, a very famous one over in the United States. He said one of the golden geese or one of the things you really want when you're starting a startup is to have everyone like 100% committed. But he said usually you don't, you never start a startup with all of the founders 100% committed the moment you get them committed is the moment you start to get traction and growth. And when you start to get traction and growth, everyone's like, all right, I'm in. So this is Gusky's, you know, we, we see this, this pop up in so many different contexts and Gusky's just put his finger on it in terms of teacher development. So I didn't only have you coaching me on my teaching, Josh. I was lucky enough to, we didn't record this, but I was lucky enough to also have you coaching on my coaching. And I was, I've been coaching a, a colleague, Dr. Mark Dowley, who was very generous to let him to let me coach him, even though he is a much more experienced teacher than, than myself. I was a bit of, he was being a bit of a, a, a test subject for me, which was generous of him. And one of the really good bits of feedback you gave me about my praise, it was actually the first action step you gave me on my coaching was you're giving too much praise on too many different things. Pick one thing to praise and then ask a follow-up question. Why is it important to just pick one thing instead of listing all of the, the things that you saw that were good in the lesson? Well, we started off this podcast talking about the problem of situation assessment or awareness, which is basically there's too much stuff to see in a classroom and we can't see all of it. And so often teachers don't see the things which matter or they don't always. Like very often teachers might have missed the really important change they made, the really important success they've had. Or certainly even if they didn't miss it, like it might not be in the forefront of their mind. Like if we give teachers a big litany of like, oh, this was great and this was great and this was great and this was great. Like I think not only does like it stop really having the kind of like it might make people feel good a little bit, but I think it probably stops having that effect after a while because teachers like, you know, how much of it really rings true. But also what it doesn't do is draw teachers' attention to the thing which really matters. Like what we want teachers to to focus on and attend to the thing which, which they've done, which they should continue doing, right? And so like we want to have that front and center, like why are we doing this piece of praise? You've done something different. It would be great if you continue doing this different thing for the rest of your career. So like let's make sure that we, make, that we recognize that thing. And so I think that's, that's you know, that's the point. It's a, it's a point about people's attention being on the thing which, which matters most. Mm. Observation notes. What kind of notes should people be making when they're sitting in a classroom or watching a video of, of teaching and, and trying to record it? Yeah, this is this is a tough, like this is a lot of the training I give coaches really focuses on this. Like how do you take notes about a lesson such that it helps you and a teacher to think about what might be the next important thing? I mean, fairly glib, but I would th talk, write down things about learning 
and whatever and whether it's happening and and how it could happen better like themes around learning so things that i see the teacher say or do things that i see students say or do things that i see in student work i i tend to just like it's like um the the top part of a funnel like i tend to take pretty wide notes at first because i'm not sure you know where the evidence is going to lead at a certain point that process of like taking lots of notes about student learning will help me to make a hypothesis about what i think could be done even better to help students learn more so like my hypothesis is that students are confused about the, the like this specific like task instruction or something and then what i try to do is i try to like so i've so i've got loads of notes pretty wide notes i've got a hypothesis i try to like then test the hypothesis and make some notes about that hypothesis so my hypothesis is that students are confused by this particular task design like how can i test that i'm going to go and collect some more evidence and at that point i will um probably have a good idea about the granular precise thing that we could talk about and perhaps work on so it's like it's basically evidence on student learning a hypothesis and some additional ev- evidence about the hypothesis itself is that clear yeah yeah that's good so you kind of you, you go in and you start recording a lot of things so that might be i mean how how long the students take to settle how many are like watching the teacher when they're giving instructions who's talking to who and what they're saying if you can hear it um, maybe some kind of diagrams and stuff like that. And over, t- and then you'll eventually go, okay, there's a pattern here. This thing seems to be popping up as an issue. I'm going to focus in on that a little bit more, collect a little bit more evidence, and then I'll have that as a, as a stimulus for, for the discussion. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, and um, something I missed. Again, it's an attentional thing. Like I like to have one piece of evidence, one of the things that happen in the lesson to be what I call the critical piece of evidence. Like the thing which... You know, like lots of the conversation can hang on. And so I tend to like make sure that I mark like the critical piece of evidence because this is the part where I think like the most fruitful and productive discussion between the teacher and the coach can can be. So like the hypothesis, I think this is happening with learning probably has like, you know, a really key thing that, you know, thing that happened in the lesson or thing that you saw. I think that that's, that's the thing which, you know, you should end the collection of like notes with like, this is a thing which we should probably discuss at the end. That's great. And for listeners in part two of this, this episode, 73B, I think it'll be, um, you'll actually hear, I think, I think that's when it, when you kind of really got me on board in our first coaching conversation, it's when you kind of brought out some of that evidence when you were like, this is what you said, and this is what you said to these students as you were giving feedback during circulation or something like that. And I was like, oh, wow, you're right. That's not as directive or as support helpful as, as it could have been. So I see what, I see what you mean in terms of that, those observation notes being really targeted towards that potential area of improvement. The next thing is kind of step selection. I mean, you, you kind of have touched on this a little bit, but often when you, when we go into a classroom, you know, especially if you're working with a less experienced teacher or, or someone who's starting out or someone who's clearly having, having some challenges, there's actually a whole heap of things that you could potentially suggest that they work on, right? So in such a scenario, how do you decide what to suggest as a potential action step? I think that like, and actually there's too much of a focus. On, I mean, we've talked a lot about steps and steps are important because they're small enough that people can make a change. But I think in terms of being diagnostic and figuring out what to work on with a teacher, steps are less important 
than the level above steps, which I call like white classroom goals, teaching goals. Like some of the worst coaching, which I think I can see is like where the steps over time, like dot around all over the place. Like we talked about this earlier, like behavior management one week, questioning the second week, blah, blah, blah. And so I think that the way to avoid this and the way to make sure that coaching is really working in the service of like helping students learn more is that you work with the teacher that you're coaching to pick like a wider goal at the beginning of a, of a cycle of coaching. So, um, you know, like maybe we think about the, the goal of students thinking harder during class during classroom questioning. So that, that's pretty big. Right. But what we do is that we like, OK, so that's our overarching goal. Right. And then all the weeks of coaching, then I basically just pick the, a next important step which works in the service of achieving that goal. And I think that's how we um, like not only that's how we kind of like get better quality coaching, which really like leads teachers to make improvements that really count in the classroom, which stick, but also it makes like diagnosis way easier, right? If I have to constantly, like there's this idea in Paul Bambrook Santoyo's leverage leadership that what we do when we're coaching is pick the highest leverage next step. And I think that's probably a little bit inaccurate. Like I think we, we, work, we work with a teacher to pick a really high leverage classroom goal, but then within that, in the service of that goal, we're just like, and what's the next thing you can get really good at to achieve that goal? And what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? Obviously, diagnosis is way easier then because like the category of stuff which you can like select between is a lot smaller. And then after a while, when you're like, oh, my God, you've got so much better at classroom questioning to help students think really hard. Let's select a new goal together. And I think that's a kind of bit more of an honest and effective interpretation of what I think coaches and teachers should do together. Thanks, Josh. That's some, that's some great advice on step selection. The next part is the bid and kind of the idea of how can or should a coach transition from praise to suggestion and action step. But I'm actually going to bury the lead a little bit with that one. I'm going to hold off on that because we actually talk about that in quite a bit of detail in both of our discussions in which you coach me. So I'm going to skip that part for now and let listeners enjoy a discussion of the bid within our part B of episode 73. Jump into a little bit about kind of the idea of modeling and rehearsal and, and maybe you like to to deal with these kind of two phases at the same time. What does quality modeling look like and how does that then lead into rehearsal and what should quality rehearsal look like? Sure. So I, I think that good quality modeling can have four important component parts. So the, and two of them are from um, an academic called Pam Grossman, who talks a lot about good teacher modeling. And I'd recommend people check out. So Grossman says that the first important stage of modeling is what's called the represent stage. And the represent stage means show the whole technique and how it works in context. That basically means either as a coach, I'll show you how that's how that particular step could look in the classroom, or we'd look at a video of teaching and see it there. And so obviously we need to do that because then teachers have an overall mental model of how a change could look. But the problem with just representing is that uh, what it doesn't do is go under the surface of how a technique works and it can lead to, to kind of implementations which are quite surface level and which don't get to the heart of student learning. So we've got to represent, but then what we need to do is pair that with what Grossman calls like a decomposition or a deconstruction of the step. And that fundamentally looks like talking about the success criteria I mentioned earlier. 
So it would be, I represent to you how a good cold call would look in class. But then I also talk about the specific things which I um, like focus on or the specific ways I ask my question, where I choose to stand, you know, the tone of voice I choose to use and really work to deconstruct that technique so that it makes like the grammar of good practice really visible to teachers. So that's represent and deconstruct, right? Show the whole thing and then take it, break it down into the active ingredients. And then I like to add a third stage, which is like narrate, which is basically um, where the coach will then kind of like do the, the representation again, but stop and be like, and, you know, talk through their thought process as they perform the step. And then finally, I, I like have an analyze stage. And in the analyze stage, basically what we're doing is working with the teacher to really focus on breaking down that technique why is this particular aspect important? How does this particular criteria influence learning? You know, so that what you'll do at the end of it is that teachers got a clear idea of how something should look on the surface. They've got a really clear idea of like how it actually works to influence learning. And you've had a really productive discussion about, you know, the best ways to use that in their classroom. That's great. Yeah. So that's very much like quality teaching more broadly. It's like provide a model help deconstruct the model and then go deeper, check for understanding regarding that deconstruction, answer any questions that there may be arising from that whole process. That's really comprehensive, Josh. Moving on there, like how does that then go into rehearsal and, and what should rehearsal look like? So the, I think the first thing before we even get to the kind of like focusing back on the criteria which were brought out during modelling, and, and we talked about this earlier, is that a good quality rehearsal is always preceded by some really high quality rehearsal planning. And so no matter what that looks like, basing it on a real lesson with some real students about some real subject content, which is going to be coming up soon, it looks like always beginning with some planning before you do the thing. I mean, you can't rehearse something until you've planned it, like how, what's going to happen in the real lesson. So like what subject content are we talking about? What kind of scripting do we need to do? What resource do we need to create to make this happen? And then once all that planning's done, then we get to the part where the teacher and the coach might, you know, perform that part of the lesson. And then is where this success criteria comes in. Because, you know, we've I'm coaching you on cold call, Ollie, and we've done all this planning and scripted good questions. And then you, you know, you go ahead and do it. And what I would probably say is like, which of the criteria you really nailed. But I would also equally say, so next time when we run this again in a second, I really want you to focus on this one of the specific criteria which we pulled out of the model and focus on really nailing that. And then you try the rehearsal again. And I would continue that process until basically you've done a really high quality implementation of the technique in a way that would suit your students. And then after that, we do it a few more times to lock it in. So that's what I think a good rehearsal looks like. And then you asked, how does that kind of link with the modeling? Well, the point is that you use the criteria which you kind of drew out of the model to give feedback. That's great. It's great. I mean, I'm, I'm getting excited now because it's just like, oh, this is all the stuff we did when you coached me. And uh, I mean, this is what we're doing. We're, we're kind of giving a model of what modeling and rehearsals should look like. We're deconstructing it and we're going to provide another model in part B that I'm sure people are going to enjoy. So thanks for that, Josh. That gives a bit of an idea of kind of the, the, the big ticket items within that whole kind of coaching steps 
within StepLab and, and as supported by the research because that's fundamentally where it comes from. I now want to transition into another part of the interview and this is around kind of one of the big debates that exists within the coaching world. Like pretty much our discussion today has centered around this idea that uh, a coach will go into a lesson, they will make some observations, they will identify an area that may you know, that the, the, the coachee may benefit from working on, they'll form a hypothesis around that, they'll collect some more evidence and then in a coaching conversation, the coach will kind of make a bid or will make a suggestion and will have actually already selected an action step for the coachee to work on. However, this isn't the approach that all coaches or all advocates of coaching uh, or all writers and, and trainers around coaching advocate for. And the way that some people describe it is kind of a spectrum from facilitative to dialogic to directive coaching. Could you, Josh, maybe paint a little bit of a picture of this kind of debate that exists currently within the coaching world and then share your take on how directive coaching could and should be? Sure, I can. It's important to say at first, I, th I think actually the debate is pretty artificial and there's just a ton more in common between you know the various like camps then there are differences so we agree all of the people that work in instructional coaching agree that like modeling really matters the implementation planning really matters you know most people agree that like some aspect of rehearsal is really important so you know we're all working on the same thing here and i think that it's important not to you know let the debate become kind of a bit too overblown that said i think the really key difference is about who could decide on the direction of travel for teachers. So some proponents of the coaching should be facilitative camp think that basically the most important thing is that the teacher should be in charge of interpreting the evidence from their lesson and in charge of determining where they go in their practice next. So whereas the kind of potential, you know, call it the directive camp suggests that like the coach can be in charge of setting the direction of travel, right? So that's really the difference here is that people who, you know, people and, you know, myself included, I wouldn't say that I'm in the directive camp because I actually think that coaches should move between facilitative and directive depending on what the teacher needs. But like, I think that it's absolutely fine for the coach to set the direction of travel for a teacher if this is what the teacher, you know, fundamentally needs in the stage where they are in their practice. But I think it's important to think about why, what the objection is with that view, because I think that there are people in coaching that think that really the coach should not be able to set the direction of travel and that setting the direction of travel for teachers, that making suggestions really does violate teacher agency. Would you, Ollie, can I, can I talk a little bit about the teacher agency thing? Yeah, I think the agency point and the motivation point are those kind of the arguments for the kind of facilitative approach. I think they're crucial to hit on. Fine. So I guess the question here is like, does directive coaching, and we're defining directive coaching as the coach can feel free if necessary to set the direction of travel for a teacher, does it violate teacher agency? And I guess like the short answer is like, it depends, but it definitely doesn't have to. An understanding of teacher agency that suggests that like by suggesting a goal or step to a teacher, we're violating their, their agency is really flawed and isn't accurate to what the research suggests about how teacher autonomy or agency works, right? It's basically a, like 
that definition of agency, which is always choosing for yourself, is, is not accurate at all. And I'll just quickly dig into the research and I think we can go more practical. So th that theory of agency or the theory of agency, of, which is like autonomy matters, comes from these psychologists called Desi and Ryan, and it's called self-determination theory. And so one interpretation of, self, of, of autonomy and self-determination theory is always choose for yourself or your autonomy is being violated. And that's like obviously what would underpin the, the criticism of, of potential directive coaching. But actually, like when you dig into self-determination theory, the definition of autonomy is just act in accordance with your own reason. Basically, as long as the direction of travel is in accordance with the teacher's own reasoning, right, as long as fundamentally what you do as a coach is say, well, I think this would be a really important thing for you to work on. Here's why. And the teacher's like, oh, yeah, I completely see that. I agree. Then we are not doing any violation of agency. The flip side of that is that if we as a coach go, hey, I, you need to do this. And the teacher's like, oh, I don't really want to. And you're like, no, do it. Then we are violating their agency because they're not acting in accordance with their own reason. That is a fundamental di like, I'm sh difference here. Like, I'm sure there are coaches that have done that, right? No, you need to do this. This is the school policy. That is an agency violating thing to do, right? But no, I don't think anyone who works inside this quote unquote directive coaching camp would ever advocate that that was the right thing for someone to do. As long as, in, like just to summarize, as long as the teacher we're working with, if we do decide to go directive and make suggestions, as long as the teacher agrees and thinks like, oh yeah, I see how this would work for me. In other words, they're acting in accordance with their own reasoning. Then, you know, fundamentally, nothing we would do as a coach is in any way agency violating. And, and I think the interest, another interesting point is that that's borne out in like the largest, most recent meta study on agency. So this study basically measured self-determination theory and looked at whether there's a difference in motivation between goals that are self-selected and goals that are shared from a third party. And the study looked at like hundreds of different a meta study looked at 100 different studies and they arrived at the, at the realization there is no difference to motivation between self-set goals and other set goals, which I think is like, you know, an important boost for the idea that, of course, we can coach directively if the situation, uh, if the situation merits it, right? That's a really fundamental point, Josh. What should people search? And um, I'll make sure I put it in the show notes if they're looking for that recent study on agency. Okay, so to look into the kind of the, the, the research, which like underpins all of this, which is the self-determination theory, really anything by Desi and Ryan, but particularly their book, Intrinsic Motivation and Self-Determination in Human Behavior is the one you want to dig into. But then for this uh, more recent study, which arrives at the idea that like self-set and other set goals make no difference to motivation, it's Epton and Armitage 2017. It's called Unique Effects of Setting Goals on Behavior Change. Thanks for that, Josh. And we will make sure we put that in the show notes. One really interesting thing to think about is not only, you know, what are the benefits of agency, but what could potentially be some of the downfalls of if we're kind of too facilitative. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, self-determination theory posits that there are two important values in terms of motivation. We're motivated by having our autonomy respected and we're motivated by gaining mastery. Now, like we've probably all teachers listening to this been in a situation where 
um, you know, we're not able to act autonomously or act in accordance with our own reasoning because we're struggling in the classroom so much. Like a teacher that is struggling is not able to be autonomous. They're not able to do what they want to do. They're not able to act to act in accordance with their own reasoning. Likewise, so if we take a struggling teacher or a teacher that doesn't really know where to go, that doesn't have the mental models to set their own direction of travel, and we say like, well, you know, what do you need to do differently? Or, you know, I, I want you to interpret the evidence from your lesson. I want you to be in charge of setting a goal. Then what in reality we're, we're doing here is we're, we're ultimately like, the teacher will fail to attain mastery because, because we know that kind of self-directed learning, uh, you know, doesn't work particularly well for people without the mental models to do that self-direction. Ultimately, what we're doing is that the teacher, you know, doesn't gain mastery quickly. They fail to act in accordance with their own reasoning. And actually, like, their autonomy is damaged overall. You know, my point here is that sometimes we help people to become more autonomous by, you know, being a bit directive in the short term. Now, the flip side of that is that, of course, sometimes we work with more expert teachers, teachers with more robust mental models. And it's really important in terms of our, our attempt to, to help loads of teachers become expert, that at a certain point, you know, we also allow the teacher to set the direction of travel that we're working with. Like, we don't always go in and make suggestions to the person we're coaching. If the person we're coaching has the mental models to make their own suggestions, then our job as a coach becomes really different. We help them enact their own suggestions. And that's the important thing about how to be a great coach is that we, we must not be too fixed about like, oh, we can only be facilitative or we violate autonomy. And we certainly must be, mustn't be too fixed on, oh, we must always be directive because that's how to help people change quickly. We just need to be flexible. We need to be responsive. You know, sometimes being directive is the right approach. How do we know? Because the teacher we're working with does not in some sense have the mental models to self-direct. And sometimes we need to be really facilitative and that's when the teacher working with does and i think really that that for me is like the sensible kind of like balanced answer to this question which doesn't become too like factionalized in one particular camp of coaching or another yeah that's that's great josh and i mean that reflects the kind of the, the title of your forthcoming book uh, responsive coaching and i know you really emphasize that kind of responsive approach and it will be interesting for listeners to hear you take, in fact, with me, you know, some someone who probably a lot of people would see as um, someone who who knows a bit about about teaching and learning. You, you do take a responsive approach, but actually, it's it was also quite a directive approach. And I think even with you know teachers who are, are quite experienced, you know, it's not like you're pointing out um, the number one thing that's like the most important, like undeniably the most important thing for them to work on. It's like here's one thing that you know, I think we have a reasonable chance of one affecting and two, if we do affect it, which we probably can, it's going to improve teaching and learning uh, and then we can move on to the next thing. Right, right, exactly. You know, when someone coaches me, you know, sometimes I'm I, I really like, oh, I know what we can do here. Like, I'm really clear on this idea. Can you help me implement? But sometimes I'm like, hey, man, I, I probably didn't see that. Are you able to give me your insight? And so the person coaching me, you know, which is basically what happened when when I coached you, right? It's like, I watched the lesson from one perspective, you were busy teaching it, <laughs> you know, you had a lot more to think about than me. So I was able to sit back and be like, okay, let's think about what's happening here, you know, and together kind of we arrived at, you know, maybe what a, a useful thing for you to work on was. It wasn't like I was, I hopefully <laughs> listeners won't think I was pushing you around, but I think that you were also, you were open to suggestions from me and, 
you know, I don't know. I certainly don't feel like it was, um, you know, in any sense, autonomy violating what happened in, uh, in our chat, right? Yeah, no, no, it was great. And I, I think, I mean, your, your kind of clarification of autonomy, because I hadn't heard of that, that work of Epton and Arbitage before, but I think that's, you know, which was, to summarise for listeners, because I made a note of it, the self-set versus other set goals and autonomy is actually, or contradicting autonomy is actually acting against the kind of rationale or the beliefs of the individual. And it's not about who, who defines the action, it's about whether it does or does not go against them their their beliefs but before before that i wouldn't have seen that as kind of a our discussion necessarily as an autonomy supporting one but i also didn't feel like like from a theoretical point of view because i didn't have that framework but i also didn't feel like my autonomy was being challenged because i was just fine with it i I was like sure that makes sense although i did although as listeners will hear i did resist a little bit at the start and so that's a, a little <laughs> yes, bit of a juicy, juicy, juicy bit of the interview for people to enjoy when we come to it uh, but i think you know that's part of the robust robust discussion and the part of the robust discussion that ideally does happen with coaching another really interesting kind of framework that i've come across recently is in some of david didow's work around leadership and he talks about how people are usually happy to work with someone if they have the impression that that other person is one knowledgeable and two truth seeking and so i think that that really captures a lot of what you've said around this Josh. it's like there's someone coming to my classroom they are either themselves knowledgeable or they have the support of a tool that helps them to be knowledgeable about teaching practices and the truth seeking part is it's that complex collaborative problem solving we are actually working together i'm going to have a hypothesis about what you can work on next uh, but i am truth seeking and if you have like a rebuttal or a suggestion of something that may be a better thing to work on in in the short term uh, i'm happy to be responsive to that yeah i couldn't agree more couldn't agree more and i love truth seeking as a um just like a nice pithy phrase for that is good i mean yeah when people listen out listen to our um our discussion particularly our discussion of the bid the part of the coaching where you kind of like narrow down on a specific change and talk about the evidence, they will, you know, I, I learned tons from working with you. And one of the things you were pushing me on is like, make sure that the the questions you ask and the things you do during the bid are open and truth seeking in their design and phrasing. And I, I, you know, and I think that's, that's super important, you know, and th- but I think they'll, people will hear the difference between the first and second conversation we had and how I try to like make that change in my own practice. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, that that leads into something else. I mean, I did want to also offer a few reflections myself on this kind of facilitative versus dialogic versus directive kind of spectrum, because I have been on kind of my own journey with this spectrum over the past few years, which is, you know, started from some initial training I had on coaching and, you know, flowed through my discussion with Jim Knight in episode 53, I think it was, or 52 of the podcast, which I'm sure a lot of people have listened to and through to my trip over to the UK recently or my two trips and then seeing you in action, Josh, and becoming more familiar with StepLab more recently. So a a few of my own reflections. One is to really agree with you that I think often it isn't helpful for us to talk abstractly about this. And I've, I've heard a lot of kind of disagreements or people arguing whether it be on twitter or in person about like oh you know we should never tell teachers what to do or we should always do it this way or we should always tell teachers what to do when we're coaching them because as you've said and i was kind of i was chatting to sarah cottingham and nick pointer about this when i was in the uk recently and we were having a bit of debate about it and fundamentally my point was after 
you know, being coached by Jim and being coached by you, I'm kind of of the opinion that actually you're probably not super different and actually depending upon where the the person you're working with, you, you're both going to be adaptive and responsive. And so, a good coach will always be responsive and having these abstract debates is often just really counterintuitive and I think it's a lot better for us just to kind of get in, start doing some coaching, observe and think about in that particular context, was that approach appropriate? Could it, could a different approach have been more effective? So, that's the first point. Also, I did actually listen back to the episode with Jim this morning and whilst you both did have, both were responsive, I think there was there was a significant difference in how facilitative he was versus how, I guess, suggestive you were. Uh, so, that's something for listeners to think about and, and listen to themselves as well. But my, my key point there was that debates in the abstract are often not as helpful as actually looking at concrete examples and discussing how effective a specific approach was in a specific context. The second thing is that I have also kind of come along on a journey in terms of this kind of motivation idea. So, I initially bought into that idea that choosing your own goal is going to be really empowering and really, you know, motivating for teachers. But probably the biggest thing that changed my mind about that was my experience this year coaching a a first-year graduate. And at the start of the year, I was taking a very facilitative approach using questions like, you know, um, what, what, what would be a one of the most important things for you to improve in your practice. What, what would you like to work on? Things like that. And I actually found that we were kind of going around in circles a bit and he didn't really know what he wanted to work on and come up with an idea one week, then we'd try something, then he'd want to change it the next week and so on and so forth. I was lucky enough that in the, it was actually kind of in the middle of the year that I came over to the UK and I saw a different approach to coaching. And then I came back as I mentioned, Dr. Mark Dowdy was was gracious enough to let me trial that approach to coaching with him. And I was able to video that session with Mark and show it to this coach and say, there's actually a different approach to coaching that's much more kind of directive. And with the coach kind of being more suggestive or directive, this is what it can look like. Would you be interested in trying this? And to this coach's credit, he said, yeah, that looks really interesting. Let's give it a go. And so, for the next couple of months, we worked in a really, really focused way. Um, I went and I came and observed his class and I was like, I think entry routine is really important. Um, it's going to help set up a much more focused uh, start to your lesson. We can go into good do now and blah, blah, blah. We jumped onto step lab. I picked an action step. I modeled it. I got him to practice. Next lesson, he kind of implemented it. We saw an improvement, but the step wasn't quite he didn't quite, quote unquote, graduate that step yet. So, we made a few tweaks, did some more practice and so on and so forth. And the benefits we saw to his, or the, the improvements we saw in his teaching were absolutely humongous. And as you were mentioning before, through the through model of Tom, Thomas Gusky in terms of motivation, the impact of that is we went from a first two terms where this kind of approach where he was kind of choosing the, the avenue for himself, or the direction for himself, in which he was actually starting to get less and less motivated about coaching in general because he wasn't really making much progress to the end of the year where like he's just cannot wait to, for us to continue working together next year because it's like we've really nailed his entry routines and he's just like super keen to get into the next bit about like clarity of explanation. So, that's been probably the most transformative experience for me around this whole facilitative to directive approach as well as some of those learnings about 
presenting things as hypotheses and and you know even what you've mentioned today about that research about agency has also been been influential to me two other things that have kind of changed my views about this facilitative to directive spectrum and, and where effective coaching sits on it is the second one is like time efficiency so i was finding that when i had these kind of more facilitative or, or teacher driven discussions they would often be like an extended kind of a chat and we'd spend half an hour and we'd kind of start to settle on a bit of a goal but there would be no practice there would be no real concrete way for them to implementation the action planning was a bit lacking whereas if we went in and i already knew kind of what i thought it would be effective for this teacher to work on i'd already planned what that practice might look like uh, and some of the criteria and things like that we had some sessions that were you know we're time pressed just really want to fit in that went for 15 minutes and that that included a debrief bid deliberate practice and action planning based upon the next lesson so there's the time efficiency and the third thing is just as a coach it gave me much more time to prepare so with a facilitative approach it was kind of like i'd have a discussion with because i'd be in a discussion with a coachee and i didn't know where it was going so the coachee might come up with any number of suggestions about what they wanted to work in on in their class and then either i would need to say okay let's pause and go away and do some research but you know given time constraints that often wasn't the case what would usually happen was it's kind of like okay that's the thing you want to work on what are some things we can try and even though i am a person who's kind of written books about teaching and learning often i would find that i didn't have at hand immediately like a, a list of great strategies that my coachee could use to get better or improve on that. So we'd end up kind of making some stuff up on the spot that may or may not be effective. In a lot of cases, as I mentioned in those first two terms, just wasn't that effective. Whereas with this new approach, I'll now pop into a lesson for 10 to 15 minutes. I'll often video it. I'll jump out and then I'll actually have time to, to really think and plan and think, all right, what do we want to work on? Okay, I think this would be effective. Okay, how am I going to, what evidence am I going to draw on to justify that suggestion? Okay, what should the practice look like? Oh, what about the modeling? Is there a video, like, is there a teach like a champion video or a step lab video or a video of my own class that I can draw on? And just that simple planning time means that in the session, suddenly I'm kind of totally geared up and ready to go with quality feedback, quality model, modeling um, and examples and then quality practice task. That means it's like just through the roof in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. And I feel like even more of an expert because I've had that time to prepare. It also provides a little bit of time to kind of, I guess, if you've seen a lesson that you that wasn't up to the stand that you would have loved to see, to kind of cool down, self-regulate and enter that coaching conversation in exactly the right mindset for it to be really positive and productive conversation so so for me as i've mentioned in you know quite a long time i've been rambling on about this for a while i have gone on quite a quite a journey along this facilitative to directive spectrum and those benefits of motivation the time efficiency and also the ability for me as a coach to prepare are some of the really really uh, big ticket items or huge levers that i feel like um, i'm able to pull when i take a more directive approach love to hear your thoughts on that yeah no i mean I think it's so interesting to hear um, the story of the the person that you kind of coached using both approaches. And I think the thing which is which is kind of heart, you know, makes me feel glad is that the teacher themselves was like, oh yeah, I feel like this approach, you know, this this approach where we can just be a bit more efficient is is actually like helping me um, because that, you know that's the aim here. It's like you know we want teachers to change their practice, have a better experience in the classroom for their students to learn more. 
you know, the other thing which really strikes me and I couldn't agree more with is coaches should enter a, a feedback conversation, like having prepared really well. And having prepared really well means having an idea about where a teacher could go, you know, having prepared the, the you know, good quality rehearsal tasks and a good quality model and how they're going to use it and the right questions to ask. But, and this is the really important bit, and this is, you know, I think the heart of being a good coach is that you've done all this prep and you're a good coach for that reason. But at the same time, you're also open to the expertise and the knowledge of the teacher you're working with, um, you know, guiding that conversation. That really is the point of this book I'm writing, Responsive Coaching, like is how do you figure out whether someone has the mental models to guide their own conversation? And, 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 and when do you know whether, when it's right to use, you know, your own ideas as a coach? Um, and so like in the fullness of time, we'll be putting lots of these ideas on StepLab. But again, yeah, the heart of the heart of great coaching is plan really well, but also be open. I think that that kind of sets out what I think it means to be a great coach. Dear listeners, before we go into some closing questions with Josh, I wanted to share a bit more about the exciting news surrounding StepLab and instructional coaching in Australia. Seeing Josh in action and the power of the StepLab platform during my recent two trips to the UK made me realise that here, in Australia, we currently have a massive opportunity to give teaching and learning a huge boost through a more structured approach to instructional coaching. I've been working on instructional coaching in my own and other schools for many years now, and there are a number of key challenges that I've seen schools face to having instructional coaching success, some of which Josh has already outlined in this episode. Firstly, it's really hard for schools to find staff members with a deep knowledge of pedagogy required to be excellent coaches. Second, even if there are one or two teachers with the required expertise to support others, helping teachers to change their practice is really hard. It isn't simply a matter of offering some suggestions and then seeing behaviour shift. Training must be much more targeted, sustained and systematic. And third, having leadership oversight of all coaches, coaches, and coaching sessions, areas of improvement and tracking exactly what's going on in those coaching sessions is extremely difficult and time consuming amongst all of the competing priorities for leaders. Seeing StepLab utilized to address these three challenges, developing staff expertise, supporting sustained changes in practice, and providing leadership oversight has convinced me that it's a completely untapped tool for school development here in Australia. And I can't bear to see it only having an impact in the UK. That's why I've decided to help StepLab to get set up in Australia. That journey starts on March 6th, 2023. As mentioned earlier, I've managed to convince both Josh Goodrich and Peps McRae to come over to Melbourne to run a StepLab instructional coaching intensive. Josh and Peps can't stay for long, but this full day event is set to be a cracker and is designed to set up schools with the tools, knowledge and expertise that they need in order to succeed with whole school improvement this year. Just as importantly, this event will be a springboard to connect with other teachers and leaders from around the country who are on the same journey and who are at the forefront of effective teaching and learning down under. And I'm personally inviting lots of movers and shakers in Aussie education to come along. So it will be an excellent opportunity to connect with other like-minded schools as well as edu leaders in Oz. Run in partnership with the Crowther Centre and with supporting partner Knowledge Society, this is an event not to be missed. To find out more about the StepLab Instructional Coaching Intensive on March 6th, as well as to hear about other instructional coaching opportunities, go to ollilovell.com forward slash coach. That's ollilovell.com forward slash coach. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Josh Goodrich. 
All right, Josh, it's been, it's been a, mass, a mammoth interview, mate. We've gone really deep on instructional coaching. So all that's left really uh, before part two where listeners get to hear what this looks like or what this sounds like in practice. I've just got a few closing questions for you if you're ready. Sure. Simple question, maybe not a simple answer. What advice would you give to your first year coaching self? So honestly, my, mine would be like think harder about implementation you know, I think that some of the biggest mistakes I've made, which, you know, I had to spend the longest time rowing back from was like, just thinking that the implementation would take care of itself, that the systems would take care of themselves. And I think that some stuff that I've learned over the years and actually learned from looking at visiting the school of people who are like absolute implementation heroes, like, um, like St. Luke's is like, think really hard about systems, think really hard about how the systems are going to work think really hard about what you can get rid of to make the important systems work. You're like, that's the kind of, you know, for me, like I wish I'd thought harder and done better planning on implementation in the early days because it would have saved, you know, saved a lot of time where stuff didn't work as well as it could have. Great advice. One of my favorite questions, book recommendations. What do you suggest people people read? So, you know, I was thinking about whether I'd just do one of the, one of the classic coaching texts, but I'm not going to do that. One of the books which I've read, which has helped me, uh, in terms of working with teachers and really um, creating moments when teachers like really learn and change is a book called The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath. The Heath brothers have, you know, written some, you know, some well-known books that are in the area of learning, like Make It Stick. And I think The Power of Moments is maybe one of like, I think it's their best book, but it's one which is maybe, uh, you know, a little bit less well, you know, less well-known. And they just talk about, you know, how we really, we, we experience our lives in moments and we learn through, you know, the, through moments that happen. And so I've, I read it and learned absolutely loads about what I can do as a coach to create moments that teachers learn from and moments that they focus on. And it's, it's, it's just, a, and a, you know, as a teacher as well, there's tons, which I, which I took from the book too. So as well, you know, I'd really suggest people dig in the power of moments by Chip and Dan Heath. And Josh, finally, any last calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? So I think basically, if you're not already, you know, involved in some kind of coaching, I reckon, uh, you know, arrange to work with a friend as a peer coach, like do a deal with someone, you know, you're going to see each other's lessons, watch each other in action, decide on some areas development for development and basically give peer coaching a go. Think hard about how you're going to help someone rehearse and, and be open to have someone rehearse with you. But like start the process off by working with a mate and, and just having a go at coaching each other. Uh, I, I think like that's a great place to begin on, on a kind of journey. Fantastic advice. Josh Goodrich, thank you so much for coming on the ERRR podcast today. I'm sure that listeners will agree that the, the logic and the structure with which you have approached the problem solving that's required to effectively implement instructional coaching is just super, super impressive. Like I, I mentioned earlier, the idea that Vivian Robinson said leadership is complex collaborative problem solving. And I can't think of, I, I don't know if I've, I've talked to someone in education who better exemplifies that approach to leadership, that approach to problem solving, and that approach to improving teaching and learning better than yourself. Uh, my, my recent visits to the UK, seeing you in action as a coach, seeing seeing Step Lab in action and, and seeing 
the impact that it's having in schools. You know, we went to three or four schools who are using it, who have really shifted pedagogy, who've shifted results, who've shifted teaching and learning was a, was a huge inspiration for me. Uh, and I'm really, really excited for your forthcoming trip as listeners will have just heard to Australia, along with Pets McRae, to work with you in more, in, you know, in more detail, really flesh out some of the, the nitty gritty of what quality coaching looks like. And to also, you know, hopefully continue to work with you into the longer term to help more schools in Australia benefit from Step Lab and, and quality instructional coaching, as well as to further contribute together. And we've already been doing some really hard thinking about what quality instructional coaching um, looks like, but con- to continue to do that hard thinking together to keep improving instructional coaching as a model uh, for the world. So, thank you so much for your time today, Josh. It was a, so much fun chatting with you and I can't wait uh, to do more work together in future. Thanks so much, Ollie, for having me on. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a fantastic chat and yet yeah, very excited to get over to you in Australia and, and continue working together. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address for a weekly email summary, again, is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.